As the 2020 school year draws to a close, it's clear that our national experiment with distance learning has been, at best, a mixed bag. Many school districts were slow to roll out plans, barely one in five is bothering to take attendance, and even fewer are providing students with feedback on their work. Not surprisingly, a substantial share of students in many districts have effectively dropped out. But there are bright spots amid the gloom, and with distance learning likely to continue next fall, even if only for part of the week, studying those bright spots may hold the key to making the fall of 2020 better than the spring. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Brian Greenberg, CEO of Silicon Schools, a nonprofit organization that has launched or transformed more than 50 schools in high-need communities in Northern California. Brian's the author of the new blog post, What We've Learned About Distance Learning and What It Means for the Future, that's available now at educationnext.org and will be the focus of our conversation today. Brian, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Marty, thanks so much for having me. And I think before we start, I just feel like it would be inappropriate not to comment for a moment about what's happening in the country. And I know all my fellow educators out there are feeling the pain around all that's happened with George Floyd's murder and the racism in our country that we're all experiencing. And it's hard to focus on anything else today, but I also know that education is the root cause of a lot of what's going on in our country, both for people who are biased as well as for lack of opportunity. So I know today we'll turn our attention to education, but I also want to just acknowledge in my heart how much grieving we all are feeling right now. Thank you for starting off the conversation in that manner, Brian, and I share the sentiment. I think one of the things that's been on my mind is the fact that students are not in schools right now, not in settings where they can uh, engage on this topic with educators that they've developed trusted relationships with over the course of the year, and that's just one of the many things we're missing out on, this generation of students is missing out on in real time uh, because of the issues that will be the focus of our conversation today. Yes. So I wonder if you might start out the conversation for listeners who aren't familiar by telling us a bit about what Silicon Schools is and what it does. Silicon Schools at its heart is a foundation and the core goal we have is to create more great schools, particularly for kids who otherwise wouldn't have a lot of great options. We are based in Northern California and since 2011, we've been part of starting more than 50 schools at this point that are on the leading edge of showing what is possible for all kids when given a great education. And also ironically at this time, we've always had a focus on technology and being thoughtful and integrating new ways to use technology. So my backgrounds as an educator, I was a classroom teacher and a principal and I kind of come from the trenches of education. But for the last 10 years, I've got to sit in this seat where we've seen what it looks like to 50 different times, try to start a new school, try to figure out new and better ways to run education. And lo and behold, March of this year, the world shuts down and everyone realizes for better or worse, we have to figure out the role of a computer in education. And we realized we had this incredible laboratory for the last 10 years where we've watched 50 different educators sort of become many of the best international models of how to do learning in person via some technology well, and then try to figure out does that translate into learning distantly through technology as well. So we um, came to this work uh, and the published study that we just released um, in ways because of the Center for uh, Reinventing Public Education survey, where they went out and surveyed districts all over the country, districts and charters all over the country. 
and ask them, what are you doing with distance learning? How long did it take? Are you taking attendance? And all this you know, really fascinating, rich data. And we looked at it and we were blown away by how few schools and districts were really meeting the needs of kids for many obvious reasons. Like we all need to acknowledge how hard it is what we asked education to do. But nonetheless, from March until June, we had more than half the country essentially getting no real functional education. And for those who were getting it, we saw all these teachers breaking their backs trying to figure out how to do it well. And they were basically doing it alone. And the data set that SERPI created was so rich, we wanted to know what it would look like in our setting with our schools. So we went out and surveyed about half of our portfolio of schools serving about 12,000 kids and asked them the same questions plus some questions. What's working? What's not? What are you doing? And our data came back really very different. The schools were immediately responding to the needs of family. They were all taking attendance. They were all offering hours a day of live and, and asynchronous education. And it sort of confirmed what we had thought, which was many of the kids were still thriving despite the obvious challenges. And it got us wondering, like, what is the difference? Why is it working or is it not working? And it led us to also then want to jump in with our schools and go observe some of the practices. And that led to this piece that we published, which is sort of what we learned and what we saw through those observations. As an educator who had to make the transition to distance learning this spring myself and expects to be doing much of my teaching online in the fall, what I most appreciated about the article is its practical advice for schools that find themselves in that position. And we'll be sure to get to that advice very soon. But you start out by asking the question of why some schools responded so well to the pandemic, like many of the schools in the Silicon Schools portfolio, while others really struggled. And I was intrigued by the answer to that question. So uh, maybe you could share that with us. Yeah, we were trying to figure out what was making some schools look so seamless. We had schools within our portfolio that literally closed on a Friday and opened on a Monday with 100% attendance and five hours of synchronous instruction and parents writing back glowing responses on Facebook and to the administrators saying, my kids are happier than they were last week. Um, obviously, that's not the norm. But every one of our schools quickly just sort of rose to the challenge of what do we do in this unprecedented time? Because they frankly didn't feel like they had any alternative. They had such deep relationships with these kids and such a moral purpose in what they were doing. It felt unconscionable to just take a week or a month or three months off and come back and see where the kids had landed. So as we spent time figuring out why that is and what allowed so many of these schools to succeed, we really realized it came down essentially two different factors that were pre-COVID conditions that allowed people to respond. And you can think of this as like a two by two matrix with one axis being the overall level and comfort with technology before the pandemic hit. For schools that already used a learning management system, that already had kids used to logging in and checking homework, assigning assignments, teachers who knew how to record a video and send messages, it wasn't particularly challenging to keep doing that from a distance. For schools who had never done it before, there's a huge learning curve. And that's just an obvious statement. But then the, the x-axis is a little less intuitive, which is the overall quality of your school culture, the flexibility of your team, the sense of teamwork that your team has, literally makes it possible or not possible to reinvent yourself on the fly over the course of a week or two remotely. And if you're in a highly rule-bound organization where there is not a sense of teamwork, where there's not trust, where there's not an overall commitment to high quality, 
I would go as far as to say it is impossible to make the jump to distance learning of, with any quality. Um, interestingly, schools that were very high functioning cultures but low on the tech curve have figured it out. And most of them have just spent their first few weeks learning the tools and sort of taking that leap to learn tech, even reluctantly. And they can move up the curve pretty easily. But schools that don't have that sense of teamwork um, and flexibility literally are finding it impossible to get better either at the tech or at their culture. And I like to tell people like, imagine you're not used to even meeting as a team. Imagine you don't have norms for how to communicate. Imagine everyone works independently and by themselves. And then suddenly, totally turn your business on its head and try to reinvent itself. The lack of culture will be the thing that stops you from innovating. And those two working together is a pretty good predictor of who made it through the COVID transition to distance learning beautifully and who just got stuck and really wasn't able to produce much of anything. Given the precise nature of the challenge schools have faced, I might have thought that experience with technology would be the fundamental barrier, but you make a good case that rather it's school culture that's more fundamental and provides the condition for learning rapidly uh, about how to handle the, the technical challenges. So let's turn to what you learned when you spent some time studying and trying to understand those bright spots, those schools that both had experience with technology and strong and flexible school cultures. When you looked at these schools that seem to be so successful at this moment, what did you learn that you think we can build on heading into next fall? So we're presuming that many schools in America will have some element of distance learning in the fall. I'm an optimist by nature. I'm still hopeful that maybe something will change and we will make the decision to go back to in-person schools with social distancing and masks. But I think for most folks, there's a presumption that we will have to figure out the role of learning remotely to some extent in the fall. My opinion is that what we've done collectively as a nation from March to June isn't sufficient. That in too many settings, kids really are either not doing anything or not getting much, much meaningful learning. So we started asking ourselves, how do we have to get better very quickly and what do we need to do to do so and like you mentioned we thought well let's go look at the outliers so we called up a bunch of our schools and said to them you know without interfering with you can we come and essentially observe we're big believers in walkthroughs and i'm an educator i can always tell a lot about a school by just walking classrooms with administrators and teachers and they said we'd be happy to have you do so and interestingly this is actually almost a better time than normal to observe classrooms because it's relatively easy logistically to do so right now you're not really interfering if you turn off your video camera and you're just one more you know silent box on the screen you can pop around classrooms a lot and so we spent a couple weeks visiting a bunch of our schools and watching teaching and learning and then debriefing with the teachers and the administrators afterwards what's working and what's not and I'd say we boiled it down in the article to five key pieces, and they're all relatively intuitive, but I hope I can put a little bit of sort of color on them as I talk to you today. Um, the first big lesson for us is that there's just something magical about being live. And I think there are online-only educators, Sal Khan probably being the best example, who've done an incredible job of sort of jumping the divide and making kids feel connected to him and his learning. But even so, Sal will tell you, and I think a lot of people experience, it has its fatigue at some point. And it's hard to be as motivated if you're not a naturally motivated learner, if there's not somebody keeping you accountable and somebody sort of checking in. And what we basically found is there's like a magic sweet spot for schools where if kids are getting we said somewhere between a half hour and two hours a day of live synchronous teaching where they're seeing people they know, they're with their kids, 
I know for my kids, like I want them to get up in the morning and brush their hair and, you know, go with enthusiasm to their computer, go see their classmates and teachers. And that's different if it's all recorded. Um, you know, we all get a million links to webinars in our mailbox. We don't watch most of them. But if somebody says, hey, this is a live event right now, it's got a different magic about it. And we think schools need to do more of that. At the same time, it's really hard at home to balance all these live timing and kids sharing devices and parents and work schedules. So they do need some asynchronous and some flexibility. So our clear lesson number one is like, you just have to be very thoughtful in how you balance that and saving the live instruction for the most meaningful, high value interactions between teachers and kids and shifting the things that you can to either independent study, um, pre-recorded lessons or work that kids can just do via online learning programs. I'd say a second big takeaway for us is that it is still incredibly important that learning be active for kids. And I can tell you, having sat in on a lot of classrooms where a teacher was doing their best to lecture or have, you know, a handful of general questions asked of the classroom, it's really hard to stay engaged if you don't have an active role in the learning. And I contrast that in the article with this great kindergarten teacher who every time she'd you know, ask an assignment, had the kids grab their little whiteboards and she had mailed them home so every kid could have a whiteboard and quickly mark down their answer and hold it up to their screen. And the engagement and the enthusiasm of these kindergartners was infectious and everybody had something to do. And we saw something similar where teachers would quickly send kids into breakout rooms of three with a very specific task of what they were supposed to do. And the kids were talking, debating, debating, and then getting pulled back into the overall classroom. And we know this from in-classroom learning. It's not very exciting, especially for younger kids to sit and be lectured at, but we can easily forget with online because you just mute all the kids' microphones and you have 25 blank faces looking back at you. That's just not going to work as the magic that we need if this has got to be a key piece of learning into the fall. Yeah, the importance of active learning is something I've really noticed in my own children's experience online this spring. And I've seen... Uh, some of their teachers do a really wonderful job of engaging students, making sure that they're thinking actively in real time, whether it's uh, working out a problem in a small group setting via breakout room, or just participating with the rest of a class in a uh, online quiz using one of the many software packages that are out there. Uh, and it's been useful for me as an educator to be reminded of what active learning looks like uh, as we make this transition. The second one of your principles that really resonated with me, given my experience this spring, was just that it's possible to get better at remote teaching through coaching and observations. I found that you know even just sharing basic technical advice or ideas about uh, strategies that my colleagues had tried and seen worked well we were able by sharing our experiences, really I think move collectively up the learning curve very quickly in a way that uh, when we're more set in our routines is difficult to do. Marty, I totally agree with you. And hearing your um, reflection on your lessons learned about active learning in your classroom, my first instinct was, well, how do you get more professors to learn that quickly? How do you get more teachers to know that quickly? And the answer has been in traditional education, observation and feedback done well 
is a game changer. And we've come to realize the same is true for online learning. In fact, it's more so because arguably we're all learning a new craft. With in-person, in a classroom teaching, everybody themselves has you know 18 to 22 years of experience doing it and as a student and their own years teaching. And we've sort of built an image, whether it's the right image or not, of what that's supposed to look like. But very few of us know what this um, blend of synchronous and asynchronous online distance learning looks like. And I have found teachers to be kind of amazing. Like they need a 30 second clip of an effective practice to say, got it, I can go do that tomorrow. And we can do that quite easily right now if teachers get into the practice of hitting the record button occasionally when something good is happening and sharing it within their school, within their administration. There's some privacy issues we have to make sure we're respecting with you know, FERPA and other uh, regulatory issues. But you know, in a regular classroom setting, it's really hard to get an instructor to go in, set up a video camera, record, edit, and with you know, online learning in theory, it's much easier to grab these little practices. And then just like we were able to observe so much by observing classrooms ourselves as visitors, the administrators are finding that true if they're good instructional leaders. They can spend such a small amount of time popping in and out of lots of classrooms for five and 10 minutes and then debriefing with the teachers afterwards Everybody needs a coach. Everybody needs a set of eyes to help them get better. And you obviously need to have a trusting relationship between your school leadership and your teachers for this to work. Um, but when you do, there's no reason not to keep a, a procedure of observation and feedback because it'll actually help us all get better. Um, and I know for me, every time I do a lecture, I go out or talk on stage, I ask my colleagues, like, what could I have done better? Help give me feedback. And I watch the video if they've recorded it. We can do that better now as educators than at any time in regular teaching. And it would just be a shame not to utilize that. And that sort of brings me to the, the fourth point, which is we can't leave every educator in America to figure this out for themselves. You have 3.7 million K through 12 teachers in America. And we're essentially asking each of them to pretty much figure this out by themselves, figure out how to solve the bandwidth issues for their kids, figure out which software works for their classrooms, figure out how to record themselves. And teachers are already underwater with how hard this is. It's just not fair to them. And this is a place where I think we need leadership at the state, at the district, at the school building level. It's also a really interesting opportunity to rethink some of our assumptions. Um, you know, how many ninth grade algebra teachers are there in America all going home to record a lesson you know, for September 1st? Um, we think this is a really interesting opportunity while we're in distance learning. And we've seen some schools do this really effectively where they're using their best teachers to teach more students over the virtual platform because it's pretty easy to do. And then the rest of their teachers are really focusing on small groups and paying attention to the student work. So in theory, you can get the best of both worlds. You can get a better quote lecture from your lecturing teacher and then more personalization from the teachers that know their kids. And there's a really fascinating experiment launching this summer, a group called the National Summer School Initiative, where a group of um, some of the best charter managements and hopefully a few districts come together and do one collective summer school initiative to do sort of academic acceleration for kids who need it over the summer with master master teachers from the best of their networks teaching one ELA teacher and one math teacher for each grade level. And then all the partner teachers spend the afternoons with the kids personalizing the learning, making sure that it's hitting home with their kids and focusing on student work. And I'm more bullish on something like that being successful at scale than 3.7 million different experiments, each constrained by the amount of time and energy a single teacher has after they've already taught all their classes for the day. And that brings us to your fifth and final lesson. And 
This is the one, Brian, that keeps me up at night when I think about the task of heading into the fall. Uh, you say we need to figure out how to build relationships remotely because obviously one advantage that we had as educators this spring when schools had to close suddenly was that we were building on the foundation of relationships between teachers and students that had been cultivated over the course of the year or at least the semester. Now, in many cases, we're going to be starting from scratch. So what are your thoughts about how we as educators can address that challenge? Well, you summarized the challenge beautifully, Marty. And I will say it also keeps me up at night and it keeps me up at night for my own kids and going into schools where they're either going into a new school or a new grade level um, and they're not yet known. And every human being has a need to feel known. And I think the fundamental relationship between student and teacher is one of care and trust. And that is objectively harder to do through a screen than it is with the magic of the in-person interaction between two people. So we are where we are. Um, I would say that one, if schools are able to open, if there are safe procedures to do so, I would not just think about splitting the day in half. If you have one day on, one day off, for example, and teaching half online, half offline, I would spend a lot of time thinking about what you do in person to build those relationships, to establish trust, to do the things that you can only do best when in person and shift the things that work just as well remotely. Thing two, I would probably concentrate on new students entering a school. I mean, my heart goes out to incoming kindergartners. We write in the article, can you imagine starting kindergarten either staring at your screen at home and saying this is what school is, or even worse, maybe at a school wearing a mask that's uncomfortable and scary with all the adults wearing masks and trying to keep five-year-olds six feet apart. So my heart is going out to both the kids, the families, and the educators. This is going to be the hardest fall I think we've had maybe in modern history of education. But I think that also gives us a lot of permission to experiment and try some different things. So we have some schools that are talking about bringing kindergartners back a week early and just having the school be for kindergartners if they can open um, for that week. We have people talking about doing virtual home visits where either they're scheduling just times to join families during meal times or maybe going in person if it's safe to wear a mask and do a social distance play date in the front yard or in the complex of a park nearby. Um, it's gonna take some creativity. There are plenty of instances of online only learning, right? Online, you know, people because they're in rural setting, whatever, and they have figured out how to have deep and meaningful relationships. I think you just have to use more of those first few weeks to preference that and to, just like you would in a classroom, get your classroom culture right. I think you need to spend time one-on-one -on -one with kids getting to know them. And the last thing I would say is the whole distance learning has interest, introduced one very interesting variable into school design, which is in the old days, you always had to figure out number of kids you had, number of adults, and always assign a kid to an adult in a building, in a room at a certain time all day long. So that put these huge constraints on how you would do your master schedule. Distance learning allows us to say for a portion of the day, the kids aren't being supervised by an adult. They've been given an assignment. They're at home. They're with their parents. And that suddenly allows us to use your teacher time very differently. So you could imagine for the first week of school, running a whole class meeting, giving kids assignments for two hours, and then having the teacher have a series of 10-minute one-on-ones with every kid. 
you do that once or twice, you arguably have a better foundation for the relationship with that kid than you do from three regular days of school where you just teach to the whole class. So I say all that to say like, you can get overwhelmed with how hard this is gonna be and we have to honor and name that because it is gonna be hard and educators are tired, rightly so now, and waiting for the summer to kind of recharge. But we're also going to have to gear up and find that next level of energy to figure out how do we do something that's never been done? How do we welcome students back to the school building safely or into a better version of virtual learning or potentially hardest of all, some combination of those two? And as we ended the article by saying, we have from now until September to figure this out. My guest today has been Brian Greenberg, CEO of Silicon Schools and author of What We've Learned About Distance Learning and What It Means for the Future. Brian? Thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks so much, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.